Good morning, everybody. Thank you for tuning into the podcast today. Just wanted to let you know that this podcast was recorded before the Atlanta massacre. At a point in this episode, our guest called out the celebrities who weren't speaking up about the Asian violence. But that was before the Atlanta massacre, which then everybody really stood up. We just wanted to let you know that this podcast was recorded before that. Some of the angers have faded away. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get on to our interview. You're listening to Strong Asian Leaf, a podcast platform for Asians across the diaspora to share their stories about what it means to be an Asian creative in the entertainment industry. Throughout this podcast, you'll hear me and my guests have deep discussions about the industry, the paths they forge, and their unique experiences on and off the film set. I'm your host, David Masami Moria. Thank you for tuning in. Our mission as Strong Asian Leaders is to amplify the creative power of the Asian entertainment diaspora, create space for artists to tell their stories, and provide resources to support emerging artists in their careers. This week, we had an opportunity to speak with Akemi Luck. She's an actress and activist who uses her talents to persevere through multiple industries and is a multi-talented creative. I met Akemi on Clubhouse, and she was one of the first people to really champion what we're doing here. I'm seeing all these Twitter and Instagram posts. Hey, come to this Asian writer's room. And I was like, who's this person? Who's this helping us out? You were the first in the room. And, and I was really cool. So thank you, Akemi. I could be here all day introducing her, all the stuff she's done to help pass out whistles, tasers, and pepper spray. Without further ado, here's our interview with Akemi Look. Thank you so much for having me. Kemi, we're going to be talking about your, the path that you've taken to get where you are today. One of the first questions that we love asking all of our guests is how you identify. I identify as an Asian American woman. I identify as part of the LGBTQ community as a queer Asian woman. I also identify as a survivor of sexual assault and as a survivor in general. And yeah, that's Japanese. I'm half Japanese, half Chinese. So I also identify with both of those communities. And I identify as an actor, a writer, and a storyteller. I'm just curious, what generations of Chinese and Japanese are you? Yeah. So on my father's side, which is the Chinese side, I am third generation. And on my mother's side, I am fourth generation or Yonsei. Yonsei. I think we discussed it earlier too. Your family was in the concentration camps during World War II, right? Yes. My my grandparents were at Tule Lake. And that was, if we're really going to get into it, a lot of the beginning of dealing with my intergenerational trauma and my identity as a Japanese American. Just to dive right in, I remember being 10 years old. And at that time, growing up in a suburb of Michigan, very white, we were one of the only Asian families. I, by that age, had already been bullied for being Asian, was already hyper aware of how I looked, that I looked different, and that I presented myself differently than other children, and was made fun of for it. I went to the Olympic Games as a spectator in 1996, and some tickets popped up on the internet for rhythmic gymnastics, which is a sport that I had never heard of. And we decided to go and watch it. I, as a 10-year-old, was so enthralled with the beauty of the sport, the athleticism, the grace. It was just one of the most incredible things that I had ever seen and ended up going back home to Michigan and begging my mom to put me in rhythmic gymnastics. And when I started competing, I realized that I wanted to prove to the world that an Asian person that looked like me could represent the United States of America at the highest level in the Olympic Games. And that became my sole dream as a child was to represent the United States of America as an Asian person in the Olympic Games in rhythmic gymnastics. So I trained my butt off. I won Junior Olympics when I was 13. I went on to make the U.S. national team 
junior national team and then the the world championship team. I ended up retiring right before the 2004 Olympics, but that's a whole other story about gymnastics and abuse and all of the stuff that I went through. With that, I'm sure everyone has, a lot of people have heard about the Larry Nassar story, which I am a survivor of him. But that whole swath of my childhood I had sacrificed because deep within me as a child, I just so badly wanted to be accepted as American. And that's something that my grandparents also went through in terms of them being told that they weren't American enough, being told that they we have the perpetual foreigner myth in America. And that sort of intergenerational trauma and shame of my Japanese American identity definitely it got passed down to my mom. It got passed down to me. And it, it for me, it manifested in this childhood dream of wanting to represent the United States at the Olympic Games. And I went as I went as far as I could and I represented the US in international competitions all over the world. And that kind of helped me come to terms with that identity. But it, it, it wasn't until later that I put two and two together that, oh my gosh, this is my grandparents' intergenerational trauma that set this off for me that I was like, I have to be, I'm not, that somehow I'm not American enough. So I have to prove to the world that I am, that I have to prove to America that I am. That, that has been an ongoing theme, I think, and in a lot of Japanese American families with, especially with intergenerational trauma and the concentration camp. Wow. Thank you so much for diving right in. That's exactly, like, it means a lot to us that you have gone through your journey to be able to share that, that per- making that personal choice and going through the healing that gets you into a place where you can share not only your experiences in the lives that you've lived, but the intergenerational trauma that's been passed down is really what we want to also share with our listeners and to see the different looks at an Asian American identity go further than just what you present at or what your last name is. Mm-hmm. And already you show us how much you are a storyteller by how you wove in these pieces. But I'm so curious when it's come to your healing journey, when it's come to processing so much of what has come through for you, what were some of the creative outlets that you were able to do that in? Because I can see you ooze creativity already through the way you shared with us, but what were those outlets for you as, as you've been processing all of this? First, it was writing, and then it was movement. It was dancing. So after I retired from gymnastics, I I just always had a love for performing. I always had a love and a desire for self-expression. And I ended up training in ballet and modern dance. And I became a dancer after I was a gymnast. Moved to New York City to pursue dance. Got a scholarship to Elvin Ailey, which is the first black modern dance company in America. It's an incredibly prestigious modern dance company. And I was training there for a while. I thought that was going to be my career. And I had always harbored a desire to be an actor. When I say that to my parents, and this is a very common story amongst many Asian American actors, when I told, told my parents that, my mom was like, look around, do you see anyone on television that looks like you? And it's it just was not possible back then. We had Lucy Liu, but that's about it. That's all that I had. Yeah, in terms of uh, self-expression, I had I, I always knew that I was going to be an artist. I always knew that I was going to to pursue something in the performing arts. And it just so happened that while I was in dance school on this huge scholarship at Alvin Ailey, I blew my ankle out. And while I was still on crutches, I took my first acting class because I couldn't dance. And I was like, I have to do, I, I have to do something if I'm not going to be dancing. Let me explore this other medium. And that's when I took my first acting class. And it totally ripped open this world of language and poetry and plays and storytelling. And for the first time, I felt like I had been given words to express everything that I was feeling. Whereas with dance, I I tell people I was silent for 20 years of my life because with gymnastics and dance, you don't speak. If you speak, you're told to shut up and just shut up and no chit chat, no talking. So 
I had already had this built-in mechanism for silencing myself and and acting allowed me to break out of that and find my voice for the first time as as an artist, as an Asian American artist, as an Asian American actor and creative and that totally started to transform who I was as a person and finding my voice has been probably the longest journey. I I just, I remember going into these classes and being so terrified of speaking because I I just wasn't used to it. I wasn't, I I literally had to go on a journey to find my voice. Having you here and being able to share the story with everybody, I think it's really important, but I also really just want to just thank you. And you having these and creating these spaces and these platforms for people like me to come on and exercise my voice, to use my voice, to tell my story. I I have not been able to tell my story and have I have not had the platform to tell my story. So kudos to you and Emmy for creating these platforms and these spaces for people like me to come up here and share my experience with everyone because I have not had that opportunity before. There's a lot of resilience in what your story has already had. Like what you've told us here, there's you've gone through so many different career paths and not been able to do one thing or having to change it over again. I think uh, a lot of people feel that and they want to do that, but it's sometimes it's a struggle to get themselves back up or to change a career or to think that they can do something else. But you've just shown us right now, you just keep going. You, you, you move somewhere else, you find another outlet, you find the thing and uh, it develops, it develops as it goes. And you don't let somebody else or even yourself get in the way of doing something. I'm uh, actually curious about that. Has there been something that has been a North Star for you or words that you've told yourself in those moments of transition, in the harder moments that kept you going? Yeah, that's a good question. I I have I have definitely hit rock bottom many times. And I think because of that, because I know what it looks like and what it feels like, and I can put my feet down and say, oh yeah, this is what the lowest of low for my life feels like. It starts to it starts to get less scary, and that goes back to just the to, to the that word resilience of I've come back from this before. I've come back from things far worse than this before, and uh, having hope and having a good support system is important too. But having that deep belief in oneself that I do have something to say. I do have a gift to give. I am on this earth for a reason is really what helps me keep going and not give up because I have many days where I'm like have existential crises of why am I here? Why am I doing this? If I'm sad and and miserable, it's not always like that. It's the hope and the greater cause of why, what is the bigger picture? What is the greater cause of why I am doing this? And to find something bigger than me, that's more important than me, that's more more important to bettering the world and humanity, I think is something that I keep going back to. And that I am just a blip on this radar or a blip on earth right now what am i going to what am i going to do with this one life that i have and how can i help humanity move forward in a positive direction so that's what i keep going back to have you found that north star for yourself what is do you have a goal that you're you're trying to work towards one of one of the biggest things that have that has emerged for me thematically has been asian american issues Asian American visibility, Asian American storytelling, Asian American history, breaking the bamboo ceiling, uplifting our community, more equity in our own community. Asian American community, we have the the biggest discrepancy of wealth in our own community and things like that really really tell me that there is a lot of work to be done. But in terms of North Star, yeah, I would say my Asian American identity has been the North Star for me and really focusing on these Asian American issues. That's beautiful. I've been thinking a lot about the idea that sometimes the things that we 
struggle through the most or that we grow with the most, the things that maybe come back as a reoccurring things theme are the the themes that are supposed to be our purpose in life, are supposed to be what drives and motivates us. And I didn't think that when we would get on to our podcast today that we'd be getting these life lessons and that I would be <laughs> literally trying to contain the smile in my cheeks because like, I'm so inspired by your vision, your optimism, and what yeah, is your greater purpose with your art, with your performance. And I'm curious, have there been characters that you've either written or that you've been as an actor that have allowed you to feel fully in your power to date? Yeah. So I did a short film called Seppuku by the director Darren Wakasa. And it was the first time that I worked with an Asian American, a Japanese American director. Specifically, his film was about intergenerational trauma and the Japanese American concentration camps and how that gets passed down and how that manifests in later generations. And the character that I played was very close to my own life. She was an Olympic runner and she has a career ending injury and she wants to represent the United States. And she has a lot of shame when it comes to her Japanese American identity. And it's this beautiful, surreal film about excavating that and killing those demons off and examining them and going face to face with those inner demons that say, you're not enough, you're not good enough, you'll never be enough, or you're not American enough. That film, when I did that film, it was so cathartic for me to do because it was the first time that I was able to really address those issues within myself and let go of those demons and face those demons literally in the moment on screen to release myself from them. So that was an incredibly cathartic experience for me. Wow. Shout out to to Darren too. He's a, a friend of ours. And I remember seeing that film and now everything's coming back full circle because when I saw you, I was like, you look way too familiar to me. But it, the what you're mentioning about literally facing the demons is that there are just scenes in that film that are frightening that I felt like I was going to have a heart attack because they're jumpy but it you're right I I hadn't even thought about that internal struggle for myself because when I'd seen it I wasn't a healing and growing person but just in your explanation of it has brought even more light to the growth the the struggle and the healing that comes in literally facing something that maybe you don't want to face. Wow, that's beautiful. I'd like to expand on that question a little more. You worked with Darren Rokasa as one of your first Asian American and Japanese American directors. What was that feeling like to be in a space that was led by Asian Americans in, in the director's position? Oh my gosh. It was, I felt so seen and so held and so recognized and so safe it was a, it was an incredibly special experience and darren is such an incredible person such a beautiful soul that i felt safe with him to go to these really dark places and that just to not also have to explain my asian identity to him i didn't have to so we had this sort of shorthand and he's a big brother to me now so I, I just feel so grateful that we are starting to have these Asian American storytellers telling their stories, entering these spaces, writing films with Asian American protagonists, examining the issues that we have in our community, in our culture, and really unpacking that in an artistic way. And I think that's it's we just we need more of that. We just need a lot more of that. I just want I, I think we need, I, I agree. We need more of that. And I just, I, I haven't totally felt that feeling yet. Like I yeah. just, we need to start having more because you go on a set and sometimes you have to explain and you want to push back on something because they're not understanding a part of the identity. And you know, sometimes they're the director. You can't really push back and it makes living on set a little harder if they're just unaccepting of a pushback or a correction. And that's just sometimes about ego or whatever it is. So I want to expand on that a little more about the industry itself. Where do you see the industry as it is, uh, knowing that, like, how many Asian directors have you worked with or other Asian uh, 
creators and actors like that space? Have you had a lot of experiences? I have built my career thus far on working with Asian American directors. I actively sought out Asian American directors and auditioned for their student films, their short films, even if I knew that it wasn't going to further my career, it was still an a, a way to build community, a way to tell these stories, a way to um, support these directors who were looking for Asian American actors, who were trying to tell our stories. So I made it a point when I was first starting out that I wanted to tell Asian American stories. Also, on the other side, these were the only people who were hiring me. <laughs> these would be the people, yeah, these would be the people who would want to hire an Asian American actress. In that symbiosis, I think a lot of collaboration and beginnings of the industry start start to happen. So I set out to do that and very intentionally. I've had the honor of working with numerous Asian American directors since then, Quentin Lee, Emily Ting, and there are so many more. Most of my dream directors and filmmakers are Asian American because I know that these are the people who are going to tell our stories. Yeah, I definitely seek it out and I definitely want to work with Asian American directors. That is so empowering. Just, I haven't heard many people go forward with the intention that this is the path I'm going to take. These are the voices I want to represent work with and design my career around. And for anybody that's listening and everybody that's listening, to hear that Akemi has done that successfully and has done that intentionally is beautiful. It's empowering. It's uh, another way to look at designing your experience in Hollywood and in entertainment. And I, I feel that is something that people need to hear. People need to understand that you can do that because you've had an extremely successful career looking at your IMDb to just the, not only the healing that comes within being these characters and the growth personal to, personally, but to transition also into writing on top of all of this. For you, what drove you to start writing characters that you want other people to perform perhaps? Yeah, I never, like I said, with our stories, no one is going to tell our stories better than us. And something that I was realizing was that I even didn't see myself reflected in a lot of these roles that were becoming available to Asian American actors. And I knew I was like, no one's going to hand me my dream role. No one's going to write the perfect script for just me. So I am going to have to go the Issa Rae, Donald Glover, Michaela Coel, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's route of writing my own stories and telling my own stories. So that was on the one hand. The other hand was like, I have also never seen an, an Asian American coming of age story that reflected my experience as a queer Asian person. And I wanted to write that. So that's what I'm developing right now is that I, I, I really, I really want to make this feature about this queer a queer coming of age love story and cast a young Asian American actress in it to, <laughs> to play a version of myself. But yeah, I think that was the biggest driving force for me was that no one's going to tell our stories. We have to tell our own stories. And where did you pick up the writing the skills? So you went to class for acting, but is something writing something you've always been doing? Is it something you picked up, learned from podcasts? Where did you? Where is this part of the creativity? Because that's just another layer of how awesome you are of what you've been doing. And then I read you; it's really good. There's things that's just another layer. So I'd love to learn, you know, more about that. Yeah, I took my first screenwriting class in college and was writing this script about a girl who finds out that her family was killed by the Yakuza and that she has deep ties with the Yakuza. And so that was my first foray was this elective class in college for screenwriting. That was the first time I really dabbled with it. About three years ago, I four years ago, I was referred to this, this incredible writing program run by this guy named Jeff Gordon. It's called Writer's Boot Camp. And it's eight weeks where you just knock out your first draft. He gives you tools, writing exercises. And then after you do the writer's boot camp, you have the option of going into a, a sort of a two-year pro membership program. And that's what I'm currently in right now is the writer's boot camp pro membership. And, and we meet every two weeks. 
We workshop each other's work. We share our exercises. And he has an incredible, an incredible toolbox for writers, for screenwriters. And I definitely recommend this program to anyone who who is interested in writing because I think that he is really great and they have a lot of alumni who have gone on to do many successful things. But for me, that's really a place where I found a, a home to hone my craft and to really work on the craft of writing. Writer's Boot Camp. Yeah, what was his name again? Jeff Gordon. Jeff Gordon. We'll put it in the show notes. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our, well, not sponsors, but we just want to uplift some great people who are doing amazing work. East West Players. Founded in 1965, East West Players is committed to raising the visibility of the Asian American experience by presenting inventive world-class theater productions, developing artists of color, and providing impactful youth education programs. Their vision is to inspire and advocate for a world free of racism and discrimination through transformative artistic works. East West Players has since premiered more than 228 plays and musicals, along with over 1,000 diverse readings and workshops for actors, writers, and directors. By building bridges between East and West, they have cultivated a loyal audience of over 70% people of color. Their company continues to build platforms for artists of color while advocating for multifaceted representations of the Asian Pacific American experience in the performing arts. East West Players' main stage is the David Henry Huang Theater, housed within the Union Center for the Arts in downtown Los Angeles' Little Tokyo District. The theater serves more than 25,000 people each year and has become a creative center in this historically significant setting. East West Players has committed to steering an intersectional focus that further unveils the diversity of Asian Pacific identities as portrayed on stage. Again, East West Players is currently not a sponsor. We just think that they are doing amazing work and we want to uplift them. So please take the time to look at their website, buy a ticket, and donate to their good cause. Now, back to my interview. Yeah, That's incredible. And it sounds a theme that I see in the stories that you've shared with us already. And again, calling out to everybody that's listening, there's an art to even telling your own story on a podcast and being able to narrate it like mm-hmm. this. So here I am, like, maybe I'm getting a little bit too inception-y in my mind, but I see you working your craft here with us right now because... I'm almost forgetting where I am, but there's a a resounding theme of like perseverance of keep at the work, keep writing, keep drafting, stick to your two, like twice a month schedule of meeting with somebody and getting notes like that. If meeting with somebody to show work isn't something that keeps you accountable, I'm not really sure what else can. But with that perseverance, something that David mentioned about the industry And we all know the accessibility for Asian Americans in the industry is tough. There's a personal factor that we fight, maybe not fight, fight, that's not the word that I want to use, but the personal factors that we experience at home, maybe not necessarily having the same, go for it, be an actress, be the writer, no worries, we've got your safety net here. We don't necessarily all have that within the Asian an Asian American diaspora here. So when we look at this industry and the Asian and Asian Americans that have made it through and where we're going to go from now, I'm curious as to what as a changing landscape or what you've witnessed in your career as an Asian American in entertainment as having contributed to our success within Hollywood. Yeah. When I first started, there was not this strong community that we have now in Hollywood. It definitely felt like I was trying to forge a path on my own until I started to meet other people and we started to link up and we started to say, hey, let's share our experiences. Let's build community. And even my parents, up until even last year, my dad was like, when are you going to get a real job? And so it, it has been a constant struggle. It has been a consistent struggle with my parents for them to understand and accept my path. I, I, and that's for them, it's out of love. It's out of fear. It's out of them wanting, not wanting me to suffer or struggle too much in this industry. But a big part of what I found in what's now happening in Hollywood is chosen family and chosen community. And really building community within Hollywood has been huge. I have seen in the last decade friends of mine established very successful acting careers. And it is such a joy to watch because I always wanted to be part of that wave that sort of kicked the door open and helped really 
create opportunities for other Asian American creatives in this space. So it's definitely changed. It's definitely expanded with also with YouTube. We have a lot of incredible YouTube stars. Just with the internet, Asian Americans are starting to find their voice and find community. So I see this as a broader movement, even outside of Hollywood that's happening, but we are starting to build community in ways that we have never been able to build community before because of the internet. I completely agree. I think not only the visibility that we're able to put ourselves on the screen and then see ourselves there and uh, democratize the visual landscape of what we're consuming, but then we're also seeing, oh, like we're out there. Like some, I think I grew up in the suburbs. It was very white community suburbs and not having uh, a visual representation of other Asians around, you don't see, you don't know that other people are out there. You just don't. And so having the platforms that we have now, it just makes it so much more like there is a community that you could reach out, that some people are doing things. Uh, and that's extremely important because then what that the whole representation movement means is like being able to see yourself being able to do that because somebody else did. And that's what really matters. And so even if it's just doing it for the first time and it's not, you're worried that it might be not perfect. It's more important that it's out there and you keep moving forward and that other people see it. Not only is that other people see you doing more, but you're continuing your path and growing that future. In that community, you start to build because then other people see you like your work, then they start to come with you and you can start to reach out to them and say, hey, let's go build something more. Let's build our crew, build our community. Oh, you're in the same area? Let's do something together. And you start to have that ability. And with things like Clubhouse, like we met on Clubhouse. I don't know if we would have, how long would have had been until we met each other without Clubhouse? We don't know. We were meeting. Long considering the pandemic. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it could be a long time. So we have the internet to really think for this community to start to build. And as we've seen, as we've seen like last night and these other larger Asian American rooms, we're having this huge discussion of what it means to be Asian American and talking about the anti-blackness in our community and having these discussions, which we otherwise probably wouldn't have had. It'd be so hard to get people into a whole room, but in general, like into a whole town hall, no one wants to go to that. Like it just, it you're already that traumatic thing and then have to take the time out of your day to go do something. It's there's a barrier, but this internet has really broken that all down so that we can come together, learn from each other, ask questions, and uh, learn about ourselves and learn about others. Because it's really important, not that we learn our own community, our own personal identities, but the identities of others and how they experience life and how they experience different, just different ways of living and how we can't just monolith ourselves into thinking that this is how we all are. And it's not true. So yeah. it's always an opportunity to keep talking with people. When Akemi, you and I had started talking before our recording, you had mentioned the ability to to meet a lot of people and hear people's different stories. And I am starting to see that after I stepped out of college, after I stepped out of the Asian American like student organizing space, I really stopped hearing of a diversity of stories, a diversity of lived experiences, because maybe conversations would just evolve, revolve around work and not revolve around identity. And it has been such a gift to hear more stories again through things like Clubhouse, to be reminded of the the renaissance of like Asian entertainment on YouTube and how that led to me for the first time feeling seen in even like Kina Granis's performances on YouTube. I was like, what? A singer? Half Japanese? I need to learn how to play guitar now. Things like that. And what it inspires me is that we're utilizing things like the internet to build community with folks that are just that are outside of our own identity groups. And I look back to David, what you had mentioned about us being a monolith. I think I personally started to fall under that myth again by surrounding myself, well, finding myself surrounded by a dominant culture. And it's really not until we challenge that monolith mentality that we really start to accept and respect the differences between our cultures and identities and get really curious about them that we as a as an Asian American and as an Asian community will get someplace. I find that a lot of people will say, Oh, Asians can never work together. They're so diverse. They're so different. They're like, why would they want to work together? 
And I can understand that argument. But I think the reason why I am invested in learning about the Asian community is because there is so much diversity. It is so beautiful. Everybody is bringing to the table different tools, different mindsets, which means that our ability to create a solution is going to be so much more powerful than a group that thinks all the same, whether that's in the industry or beyond that. Oh, I love that so much. I, that, yes, yes to all of that. (laughs) Absolutely. And if you really think about it, we have, because of our, just to to reiterate what you said, because of our diversity of experiences within the Asian American community, the creative solutions that we can come up with just in terms of our diversity of thought, it's incredible. And I don't think that, I don't think that it's something to take for granted at all. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. Thank you for this conversation inspired and helped me remind myself of what that looks like. I'm somebody who gets a lot of mental images. So yes, the mental images of us each bringing a different tool is one person has chopsticks, another person has an abacus, and other people have all of their skills and talents that we're bringing to the table. And those are just the stereotypes of who we are. But the coolest thing is that we're leaning in our stories that we're seeing presented on screen these days. They'll be a very nuanced representation of that Asian family member. Like David and I keep talking about how we're just going to have a scene of Asian Americans and you're just going to see a pile of shoes by the door. (laughs) Or it's a a Filipino or a Pacific Islander family and there's just a bunch of slippers outside the door. Like those little things for any of us that are Asian or Asian American, we're like, oh, okay, I get what sort of family this is right now. Immediately, without explaining anything. And of course, the, the... white dominant culture will need a little bit more explanation to truly get there. But if we keep producing that content, they'll pick it up. Just like anybody who's ever watched anime over and over again, or K-dramas over and over again, you get the cultural nuances without anybody explaining anything. So I'm excited to see that as part of the future as all of this content keeps getting created and keeps getting supported. Yeah, absolutely. What we like to do here is also find solution-based problem solving. So we want to find other solutions. What is something that you'd like to see changed in the industry and you have a solution for it, like a proposed solution? As we are building the Asian American community and coalition, we are starting to see leaders emerge in a big way who are interested in community building and who are also interested in coalition building with other minority groups, which I think is crucial. And one thing that I would love to see specifically in Hollywood is more of more of our stars and influencers speaking out about issues pertaining to the Asian American community. And I, I get that it can be tough when you have a platform, when you have a career. I would love to see it less controversial or scary for our Asian American stars to speak out on Asian American issues because they have such an influence in the culture and because they have such a platform. How do we create a safe space for them to say, I'm doing this for the community. This is important to me. And at the end of the day, maybe it's not important to them. And I think that we also need to maybe question that and I don't know, ignore that. But That was a big thing for me at the beginning of the pandemic when the Asian hate crimes started spiking. I was looking around at a lot of people in very privileged, influential positions not standing up for their own community, not standing up for the people who literally put them in that position. And for me, that was absolutely infuriating and I felt I felt extreme sadness and frustration with that, but I also have empathy for them that they've built these careers and it's maybe they don't want to tarnish their branding or whatever, but I would love for for them to be able to feel safe to speak out and to create an environment where it's not controversial for them to speak out. Yeah, I think that's that would be my solution is to also look to these leaders who are emerging, who are speaking out, and and look to them and put social capital in them. Give them more influence. Give them more of a platform. Uplift their voices. Amplify those voices instead. So that's what I am I'm seeing emerge in the Asian American community just more recently. And that's definitely giving me hope is that, oh, okay, maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. Maybe the people that I want to be speaking out, aren't speaking out. 
well, that's what happened. But there are people who are speaking out and let's amplify those voices. So yeah. That's an incredible strategy. Why do you think that these influencers and actors in power don't speak out? I think because they are afraid of... I think they're afraid. I I really do. I think there's a fear of, oh no, if I speak out, people will think that I'm negative or victimizing myself or my community. And it could be something as shallow as, oh, it's going to tarnish my brand. Or, But the feeling that they are above it all just rubbed me so the wrong way. And, and I think that's definitely something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Does that make sense? But I think there is a, yeah, I think there is a, 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 a genuine fear there. And, and I wish that it, it, that, that it wasn't. I wish that it wasn't. And I wish that that we could foster an environment where they did feel safe. I, I think there's other actors and other examples who are not Asian who are able to speak out against things and have the communities back, the communities backing on it, or not other, not of their community backing on it. And you have people who just say stupid stuff and do stupid things, but people still like them. I won't say any actors' names, so they are they do contests and they win those. I'm like, why? Why do you get? Why do you get to do that? Or why do you get to do this uh, stupid, make this mistake, and then everybody still goes watches your movies? I don't understand. That's an interesting juxtaposition of privilege and authenticity, mm-hmm. which is interesting today because we see our social culture rewarding authenticity, no matter how terrible you may be. If you're being authentically, you're going to get a following, which perpetuates, I think, what you're talking about, David. And then one of the one of the reasons why I think there is so much fear that you highlighted, Akemi, is one of the reasons that fear exists in speaking out is because folks are unaware of what social capital they have backing them, because they're unsure that if they speak out, maybe that deal gets cut and their stream of income gets lost and they don't have generational wealth or a safety net behind them. And so this is where privilege plays into the fear of being the only Asian in the room, the only Asian talking about this. But your solution being that we can uplift these individuals, we can show them how much support they have, we can connect them with other like-minded, loud, high-following individuals and say, all right, you two create a campaign together, we'll support you, things like that. That's a visioning that David and I have had with what Strong Asian Lead can do as a community. But we've also seen that with Hate is a Virus, saying, no, we're not going to sit back. That was a beautiful example of coalition building collaboration amongst Asian Americans and Asians inside this country and outside of this country, which was incredible to see. But I'm really inspired too. We can build that power to combat that fear And it does require people taking a risk, us stepping out for our values first versus necessarily that, ooh, could I lose my brand or followers, et cetera, because of this. Yeah. And I think there's an issue within the community too. I don't call it an issue. I I think there's a, there is a, it's just a cultural issue. I think it is within the Asian American community for the Japanese. It's the the nail that sticks out gets hit first. And so the one, even if your own community might say, don't do anything, you're being a troublemaker. And sometimes that backlash is against people. And we get gaslit all the time. There's a whole thing on Clubhouse last night, people getting gaslit. Like you don't get to say anything because you guys are not people of color and you don't have, you have too much privilege. That doesn't mean anything. You get, can't get gas. Don't do that. We our experiences matter and are valid too. And when we want, we have people to speak up against these things. It's you still have to stand your ground too. Even if the community doesn't want it, what's right? You know, it's right for yourself and it's right for other people. You're going to try to help other people, even if your community doesn't really agree with it. And they might be an older generation who doesn't get the Asian American experience. It's a whole different experience. And they come from different countries. If you're an immigrant of communist countries or different, just different ways of living. The one thing I wanted to also bring up is uh, Stephen Yoon had an article come out like today or yesterday. And one of the things that really hit hard that I saw on Twitter a lot, and it says, should we ignore them because nobody else really cares about them? Sometimes I wonder if the Asian American experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everybody else but nobody is thinking about you. Yeah, that quote definitely resonated with a lot of people. He came out with that. And I think that was like, ooh, yeah, that happens. And Mm -hmm. as much as that might get a little pushback and you don't get to say that thing, like same time, it's true. Like a lot of us feel that way. 
And we don't like to say that too, because we don't want to be the ones complaining. But at the same time, it's true. And one thing that I see that this is what I see in the industry that I'd like to see changed is his managers are Asian. I bet they backed him on that. And so if there are Asian actors out there, writers out there who say things against other communities or just feeling about the Asian American experience, but aren't Asian American managers and agents who say, don't do that, you might lose your career, you're going to lose the white audience because you're talking about Asian American issues. That's a problem. I hear a lot of people who are are writers. Yeah, but he doesn't want me to write the stories I want. I'm like, then why is he your manager? I'm like, don't you you want to write? They work for you. And so if they're trying to silence you a little bit because they're not Asian, like that's a problem. So, I mean, if if your manager is not Asian and they're going to support you, great. But if they're going to silence you for things that you need to speak out against, that's the thing I want to see changed. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. 1000%. And it goes to what you shared at the beginning, Akemi, about how there are people at every single level who can help make that decision, whether it's the director who hired you or even the showrunners, et cetera, that bring in Asian American voices or Asian voices that v- vouch and for that vouch for and uplift Asian Americans who are entering into the industry. They have to exist within the industry to be able to pull folks up. And working within the agency structure, I was able to see something really profound. I feel like with any large structure, and I worked in Capitol Hill prior to being in the entertainment industry, and I found a lot of similarities. But as soon as you step in as an intern, you're essentially told to wipe clear of anything that is you, of your identity, and instead take on the cloak of the dominant culture within that space. Oftentimes, the dominant culture here in America is white culture. And I thought I would see that erasure of identity throughout the different levels within the agency. And of course, that in especially young people who are still trying to figure out who they are as a human, let alone their ethnic identity, that's just a whole nother level you're throwing at them. But the people who were truly successful within the agency were the individuals who never once or maybe forgot and then reclaimed again their identity, who stuck out for stories that were similar to the experiences that they had growing up. And sure, maybe sometimes they got known as the agent that was all for Black stories or all for Asian stories, but they didn't care. They were like, that in itself is worth it to me. I'm here for that mission to be representing these stories so that other people, as you mentioned before, I'm kicking down the doors so that other people can come up behind me. And it's really inspiring to see just how many times you've done that in your own career, kicked down a door, seeing that somebody also opened a door for you that was already in that position as well. And we really believe in this top-down, bottom-up approach at Strong Asian Lead as well, that like the solution can't be built if we're all just in one level, like one story, one narrative. Like Our diversity in itself is a tool that allows us to be in so many different places with so many different experiences that are frankly fascinating and interesting. That's the thing I never understood about the industry is they try to shove everybody into one story when literally mm-hmm. isn't it the thing that you haven't heard that sells? I haven't quite got that. So we're gonna we're gonna wrap start wrapping it up here. And before we get to our rapid fire questions, is there anything uh, else you'd like to add to the conversation? That's something you want people to know or hear or something you just like to express? I think that we we covered a lot. I would just say that these conversations are so important and that we just keep having as a community, we have to use our voice. We have to speak up. We have to tell our stories. We have to literally, even if it's scary, put ourselves out there and speak up, tell our stories period. Like that I think is just the biggest, the biggest hump to get over as a community and culturally. So I encourage everyone to be that loud Asian person in the room. Yes. Yes. Thank you for sharing that charge. I love that. What are you cooking right now? Last night I made salmon and I and and grilled vegetables. I'm trying to eat healthier. Yeah, I just learned a technique for crispy skin for salmon. And it's basically you scale it and then you salt the skin and you let it rest face um, face down on the paper towel so the moisture can be absorbed out of the skin. And then, and then you sear it on very high heat. And that is how you get 
crispy skin on fish. Oh my god. Drop, <laughs> dropping mics everywhere. I've been wondering. Yeah, that's, that's, I love cooking. That's why I'm like, let's put it on the podcast. I don't know what you're cooking. If you know how to cook something good, that's what I want to learn. That's a new technique. That's fantastic. <laughs> you're welcome. What are you watching these days? Because of the pandemic, I am definitely have gravitated towards more lighter fares. I've been watching Shit's Creek. It's just a, it's just a feel-good comedy and even though there aren't any Asians on it, it's still a sort of fish out of water story and I really enjoy it. And our last one, who or what do you want to uplift that audiences may not have heard of? I definitely want to uplift Sam from Hate is a Virus and the entire Hate is a Virus team because when this stuff went down in March, I was looking around and I was like, what are we going to do about this? And then Hate is a Virus emerged as a, as a leader and as people who were speaking out against the anti-Asian hate crimes and the harassment and the assaults that were happening to our community. And thank God for them really stepping up and doing that work because we needed that. We really crucially needed that. And it's leaders like Sam and Hate is a Virus that we need to put our attention and backing and amplification into and seek those people out. So I would, yeah, I would say Sam and Hate is a Virus and the Hate is a Virus yeah. team. Yeah. And that's Sam Huyen, you know, H-Y-U-N. He's been such a, just someone, he's bringing the community together in yeah. such a way that I don't know anybody else can really hold it down as much as he does. He works so hard, not only on his Real Talk Tuesdays on TikTok, he's the uh, chairman of the Asian uh, Asian Commission in Massachusetts, and he's just yeah. now he just got back into grad school. So he is a force to be reckoned with, and I look forward to whatever he does in the future and supporting him. What he does, I think it's fantastic. And the Hate Is a Virus team is just killing it out there. He, they're really pushing out the noise, making things happen, and I think that's a great uplift. So thank you, thank, thank you. you for that. Okay, we've been so grateful to hear more than we even thought we would about your journey. And we really appreciate the honesty and vulnerability that you invited to this space. I know that so many folks are going to see themselves in every facet of the story that you've told, which is power, right? We, we often lean on the quote, consciousness is power by Yuri Kochiyama here at Strong Asian Lead, because every time we learn something new, every time we become aware or conscious of a different experience. We understand we have more power. So thank you so much for sharing what you have with us today. And we cannot wait for everything that you're working on to pop off all the stories that you're writing to be on the screen. And um, we can't wait to speak with you again in Clubhouse and on other platforms as well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for creating this space um, and this platform for me to speak on because we really need it. And you two are amazing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right back at you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again to Kemi Luck for coming on the podcast and just taking some time out of your day. Thanks again to Emile Kamamoto for jumping on as my co-host. This episode was recorded months down the line, so we, we miss you at the podcast and, and that strong Asian lead. Thank you to our podcast editor, Ravi Lad. Thank you to our podcast producer, Kenneth Tenoy. Thank you to our social media manager, Allegra Batara. Our Canva designer, Dennis Michael Broussard. Our project manager, Sanji De Silva. Our intern, Sadia Hussein, and Sky Nakamura Adat Analyst. Tune in next week for our episode with Mickey Ishikawa. And that's our show, folks. See you next week. <laughs>